0: is the conversation on hawaii public radio i'm Catherine cruz a 34 million dollar tourism marketing and management contract is looking like it's headed back to square one it took a three hour senate ways and means committee hearing to get to the bottom of not one but two controversial awards first to the hawaii visitors and convention bureau and then to the council for native hawaiian advancement hba's casey harlow joins us this morning that was quite a hearing
1: oh my gosh (laughs) yes um where to even start with all this, I guess uh, we could get into the history, uh, which dates back as far as back as October 2021, uh, when the HTA under state law has to at, uh, put out an RFP uh, request for proposals for uh, major contracts like the U.S. marketing and branding of Hawaii. And so initially the uh, HVCB, the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau, won that award. CNHA the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement uh, protested that so sending that back to the second round and then in June CNHA got the award and there was some tweaks and changes to the RFP that seemed to have skewed uh, more tailored towards CNHA HVCB then protested that as well there was the same evaluators for both uh, awards uh, some people may have dropped out but a majority of people really stayed that uh, on board to uh, award these things. Then, uh, within that protest, uh, Mike McCartney stepped in. Uh, he's the former HTA CEO, then became uh, the executive director of the Hawaii uh, the State Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. And so, trying to resolve this, he uh, gave a 90-day extension to HVCB, worth more than $4.5 million. And then, in October last last month, a press release which kind of surprised uh quite a bit of people uh decided to split the u.s branding contract between hvcb uh which has held that marketing contract for years for since dating back as far back as the 90s i believe and cnha uh both doing something a little bit different cnha being in charge of the destination management side of things and hvcb uh being in charge of the marketing side of things. And so it's having um, both of these contracts or this contract being split up into two worth $20 million each to each organization, which the initial contract for the RFP was worth $34 million. Right, so there's
0: a lot writing on this. And I know yesterday's hearing uh, that those lawmakers gave... uh, a number of people a grilling everybody from the Hawaii Tourism Authority to the attorney general's office, the head of procurement, and uh, the DBED director, Mike McCartney.
1: Yes, and ultimately, Mike McCartney took the blame for this. He said, I, t- I take responsibility, and this is an exchange uh, that he had yesterday. I
2: take responsibility for where we're at because they followed me along in good faith to try to find that solution. The AG advised me that it's not a preferred path and not in the best interest of the state, and I'm prepared to accept that and tell the parties that. I I just informed them right before this hearing. And then last night I was working on all the documents and then the volcano erupted. You know, we don't have staff, but that's... So Senator Wakai, what we're doing is implementing your recommendation. And we have enough ARPA money appropriated by HRS 29 by the governor just to the end of this year. So now it's gonna be the legislature's call how you want to shape it going forward. And then I, I welcome the help about how to handle the procurement process better. So I think that that's what we're trying to do is just make sure that I'm making this decision in what I believe is in the best interest of the state and advantageous. I know it's frustrating for the bidders, but sometimes that's just the process. And, you know, I apologize for that. But I don't want anybody to think, especially you, feel that, you know, everybody followed the rules. And then, you know, I know the pain in the industry and the pain in the community about tourism and the issues that we face in the community doesn't feel like it has a voice, but with your involvement, I think it's going to, but we have to go through the process to make sure we can do it and, and it's sustainable. So I know I'm talking about all kinds of things to try to answer all the questions that came up, but that's what, um when I first came in to say, I wanted a recess, you know, I have the preliminary documents here that I was going to sign today and stop it and then go forward with the recommendation. And so it's taken some time to get all the ags together so from that date we had a couple meetings and that last meeting was on the um last week tuesday and then you coincidentally asked for this hearing which i think is very helpful so i think it helps to clarify the, the gaps that we have and then how do we fill them so we can execute it and everyone has confidence in us
1: and so basically he went into that meeting saying i'm going to cancel this rfp and that was done possibly without the advi- uh, like uh, getting the advice or the consent of the HTA board uh, and the stakeholders and HTA executives. And this is an be- uh, exchange with uh, Donna Mercado Kim, uh, basically saying that this is all about transparency.
3: I need to say something, though, and I understand where you come from, Senator, but this is about Hawaiians versus not Hawaiians, this, this is about the procurement and whether or not we follow the laws of the procurement. And I just hope that it's not characterized. And then when it, you know, talking about giving a person a chance, it isn't about following the procurement law, chance or no chance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: and so, so Senator, it's what I believe is what I'm recommending is the most sustainable option to avoid further challenging on who wins, right? Cause this process is going to keep if we stay with the existing one it could not be resolved for over a year or more even after this because it would go to DCCA and then to the court right so that's what we try to resolve but
3: Mike we're doing it because they were a mess up in the beginning people screwed up and made this whole process look bad because they didn't follow the law
2: and I could have done a better job of coaching them and helping them through that. And right, that's what, yeah. and
3: instead you you made it worse. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. I have to say yeah. that.
2: Yeah. But before you uh, cancel the award and the RFP, why not go
1: to the board and ask them, Do you want to stick out th- with this process, or should we cancel? Because right now it's unilaterally being decided. And that was Donovan Dela Cruz at the end. Um, you know, basically saying that. This is you making this call and laying the blame on yourself or taking responsibility on that. And there was, there's not to say that there isn't some blame to be uh, put onto the HTA as well. Senator Glenn Wakai even mentioned and noted that HTA uh, was, had a hands-on role in the first RFP, but then basically relinquished everything in the second RFP and just gave it to DBED. And Kalani Ka'ana Anna, uh, who's the chief brand officer, said that HTA was understaffed and uh, didn't have enough resources to handle its own procurement.
0: Right, and HTA has their next meeting, I think December 21st. We'll see if they call an emergency meeting uh, to take up this uh, bid question uh, sooner than later. But thank you so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been uh, talking to HPR reporter Casey Harlow, who covered a Senate Muddy Committee hearing yesterday. It was called to probe whether proper procedures were followed in the awarding of a lucrative tourism marketing contract, now looking to be rebid for a third time. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz.
4: Onihoa, Olehua,
5: Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Molokai,
4: O Lana, O Mau, O Hawaii.
0: In our backyard today, we're taking a look at the oldest volcano on the big island, Kohala. Well, actually, it's the oldest visible volcano. Hawaii is the youngest and largest of the islands, and its most recent lava flows are now years old. In other words, new lava is erupting and building there even as we speak. The present eruption has been going uh, on since uh, 1983, and the island building hotspot beneath the Pacific Plate is currently under Mauna Loa, Kilauea, and Loihi. As the plate slowly moves northwestward, older volcanoes go extinct and erode. That's why Kohala Volcano, now known as Kohala Mountain, appears and is more worn down than its newer neighbors. It breached the surface over a half a million years ago and went extinct about a quarter million years later. But there's a big island volcano even older than Kohala except well you can't see it for today's quiz can you tell us its name call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag uh, an HBR tote bag
6: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
2: Hello, I'm John Crowley, co-founder of CoolPetaluma.org. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about building social capital in neighborhoods block by block.
6: Beginning
7: Sunday morning at
6: 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing comprehensive health care open to all. Learn more at HICommunityHealthCenter.org.
0: Lava is shooting up to 200 feet in the air as the Mauna Loa eruption continues on Hawaii Island. Right now, no homes or communities are threatened by the lava flows, but the U.S. Geological Survey says the current lava flow is about six miles away from Saddle Road. The eruption started Sunday night in the Moku Veoveo Caldera on the summit of the world's largest volcano. But at last check, only the lowest fissure on the northeast slope is currently active. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked with USGS geologist Katie Mulliken this morning to get the latest.
8: So this morning we have some geologists in the field right now observing the northeast rift zone eruption of Mauna Loa. They noted that there are a couple of fissure sections that were active generating several lava flows that are traveling in a northeast direction. Those lava flows are on the northeast flank of Mauna Loa, which is pretty remote and there isn't much infrastructure. So right now there's no threat to any
9: any property. And I read on the USGS website this morning that of the three fissures that have erupted, only the lowest one, the lowest one in elevation, is still active. Is that still current?
8: No. um, At least as of about 7 this morning, there were a couple that were active. So Fisher 3. And then last night, there was another fissure that started at approximately 7.30 p.m. And both of those were active this morning. Fisher 3, or the the third fissure that activated, was kind of the dominant fountain, and that one had a large lava flow or had the largest lava flow that crossed the Mauna Loa Observatory Road last night at about 8 p.m. and had come by 7 a.m. and had come to within about 6 miles or, or 10 kilometers of the saddle
9: road. Uh, any active uh, eruption in Moku Aweo No,
8: the you know, Mauna Loa eruptions have typically all started in Moku Aweo caldera and then about half of them have moved into a rift zone. And that's exactly what we saw for this eruption. We saw the summit phase start, and then within a day, the eruption had migrated into the northeast rift zone and no more activity uh, has been observed in the caldera.
9: Are we still seeing a gas plume coming from the fissures that would maintain that ash advisory or warnings about potential health impacts from VOG?
8: Yes, there's definitely still a gas plume visible from this eruption. It's visible from around the island. From Hilo this morning, it was pretty prominent. So that's definitely still present. And then in the evenings, of course, from around the island of Hawaii, the glow from this eruption is just very prominent and very visible.
9: Yeah, I've seen the pictures. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. The glow is exactly what I remember from that that last eruption. So it's uh, it's been pretty cool to see.
8: Yeah, I, I grew up on the big island and wasn't around during the last eruption. But my parents always talk about it. And so it's been pretty special being able to, to observe this and, and be here for this eruption.
9: I know that the lava flow is not threatening any communities or any homes or any structures at the moment. The AP is reporting that if the eruption would continue, the flow could take a week or more to reach neighborhoods. And I know that several communities are on standby for evacuation. What's the most important thing they should know right now?
8: Right now, this is a very new eruption, so it's very dynamic. Things are changing, and we're really closely monitoring that situation. So I think the most important thing for residents to know is to listen to the County of Hawaii Civil Defense Agency. They will be releasing any notices about changes that might impact residents. And of course, the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory will be reporting on the activity as well. So just really going to those trusted sources of information during Times like this, which are not very normal, I think there can be a lot of misinformation shared online, especially on social media. So important to go to those sources of information that are the official ones.
9: Turning our attention to the USGS, does the USGS plan to conduct any studies on the lava to determine its content or possibly its age?
8: Definitely. We've had geologists out in the field that have already collected some samples and who are starting to analyze those samples. Prior to this eruption, there was the longest repose period for for Mauna Loa, which hadn't erupted since 1984. So it's going to be really exciting to look at those samples and analyze them for clues about magma storage, uh, things like that. And of course, we have geologists out in the field right now who are also working to document what the effusion rates are and the volumes. So how much lava is coming out and how fast is it coming out? and that can better inform our estimates of lava flow advances. So, you know, how fast lava flows might move in certain directions, things like that. So there's so much to be learned. This is really an amazing scientific opportunity.
9: I'm really excited to learn about the age of this lava. I remember during the 2018 eruption, there was reports that said that some of that first lava that came out was still from the 1960s eruption. It'd be cool to know if if this you know lava is is new or if it's from the 80s eruption or, or from before then, that, that to me is the most exciting part.
8: Yeah, definitely. In 2018, when Kilauea erupted from the Lower East Rift Zone, the early phase of that eruption, the lava that was erupted was really quite sticky. It didn't flow very far from the erupting fissures, and that was because it was this older lava that had been stored beneath the ground since the last eruption, so since 1955. Of course, by the time the fresh magma got down to the Lower East Rift Zone, it was much more hot and fluid, and so those lava flows traveled a lot faster. But yeah, those differences in the ages of the the magma impact how it behaves on the surface. So it will be interesting to see.
9: Speaking of the 2018 eruption, were there any lessons from that eruption that informed the way they monitored Mauna
1: Loa?
8: Yes, the 2018 eruption, the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory went into a 24-hour watch and had staff deployed out in the field that eruption happened in a residential area and so it was very accessible people could drive there this eruption is happening in a a more remote area that's a little more difficult to access but a lot of the techniques that the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory used in 2018 to monitor that eruption are being used in this eruption so deploying web cameras that can monitor the eruption from areas that we didn't previously have web web cameras that's a huge advantage and kind of a technique that perfected in 2018. We've also had the two summit eruptions of Kilauea since 2018. And throughout all of these eruptions, HBO as a team has just been perfecting kind of remote response as well with COVID. So a lot of us are working from home, but able to contribute to this eruption response, which has, I think, helped the speed of the response. So we have our, a lot of our work setups are available right here in our homes. So there's no delay in driving to the office.
9: Was there a moment a few weeks ago, a few months ago, when USGS scientists were looking at the data about Mauna Loa, was there a moment where somebody was able to say, this is going to happen, guys, get ready?
8: One of the difficulties with Mauna Loa is that the last eruption in 1984 was before a lot of the modern monitoring techniques were developed. And so we've had limited data leading up to this this Mauna Loa eruption. And there were a lot of questions about what types of signals we we would see if the signals we were seeing were meaning that an eruption was immediately imminent, you know, within the next few days or weeks. And so back in, let's see, early October, there was definitely an increase in seismicity and we were seeing some, some increased rates of ground deformation. So we could definitely say for sure that there was magma coming into the system. And that is when we worked with the County of Hawaii Civil Defense Agency to go out into the communities that could be impacted pretty quickly by a monolol eruption and just spread that word that we were seeing this increase in activity, that it could mean an eruption could happen in the next, you know, weeks, months. We didn't really know the time frame, And even leading up to the eruption, there was only about an hour of increased really increased earthquake activity leading up to the, the eruption. So yeah, it's just been a really great learning opportunity now to have, all this modern monitoring data showing what Mauna Loa does leading up to an eruption.
9: As someone who grew up on the Big Island, I, I read that you grew up right there in Volcano. How excited were you to be able to witness something that hasn't happened in nearly 40 years like this eruption?
8: It, yeah, it was um, pretty amazing to be a part of the, the response crew as well. So just a great team of people who uh, have gone through several eruptions now together. Many staff have been studying Mauna Loa for decades, and so to have their perspective as well, it's it's been yeah really amazing. And last night, I went to bed and was able to see the glow outside of my bedroom window, and that was just a uh, really yeah it's a, a really uh, great and unique
9: and special event. Thank you so much for your time, Katie. I really appreciate you talking to me about the eruption.
0: Thank you, Russell. That was USGS geologist Katie Mulliken talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about the monolore eruption. We'll continue to have more updates as they become available. Keep up to date by checking our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. One the Beat looks at a development in the possible path of a lava flow. Editor Chad Blair joins us live for our reality check. Good morning, Chad.
10: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So this is a story that uh, Kevin Dayton wrote.
10: Right. I'm coming for Kevin, who, by the way, is in Hilo today. He's at the Hilo Public Library. Civil Beat has a pop-up newsroom there from 11 to 6, so feel free to drop in and say hello in person. <laughs> but the story he's focused on today was points out that, you know, the county of Hawaii is still paying off property owners for what happened in 2018 with, with the Kilauea lava flow, which, as we know, devastated Leilani Estates, Kapoho. Uh, and of course, we could go back to Kalapana back in 1990s. But there, are, there were about 700 homes destroyed. And it raises the question whether the county will be prepared to be able to even handle more. Right now, the northeast rift zone flow is not affecting not near anywhere near homes or businesses. We hope that continues. But as we all know, volcanoes can change rather suddenly.
0: Yes, and as we just heard the geologist say, she went to bed and she could see the glow from her window. (laughs) It's a little unnerving.
10: (laughs) It is, and I was actually in Hilo as a very young man, mind you, back in 18, 1984, 85 and I, re- I remember that red glow in person. Of course, <laughs> I've seen it since uh, from from Pu'u'u'u and others. But, you know, we're talking about federal money that HUD provides, $107 million. That's how much the Big Island got in order to help people uh, to buy out, you know, where that property was so they could maintain it as an open space. They'll pay up to $230,000. For homes that were destroyed or isolated but a lot of it hasn't been done yet 280 owners actually applied only 85 of those properties have closed for about 11 about 15 16 million dollars so the question i think ultimately that's being raised is should the should the county changes its, its policy its, its rules uh, governing how uh, where and when you can develop land mitch roth the county mayor did say just yesterday he's got mixed feelings about that i mean people want to build a home. There's a lot of affordable land on the Big Island, unlike a lot of other places in the state of Hawaii. Uh, so what do you do? Um, ownership is an American dream, but is it really wise to be building on a, an active or a previous lava flow?
0: Yeah, and there are people who say, you know, this is crazy. These are high hazard zones, and we shouldn't be there. And you, if you buy property down there, it's at your own risk.
10: Right. That's coming f- uh, from Ashley Kirkowitz, who's in um, Kevin's article, she, Hawaii County Council member saying, I think I think stupid is the word that was actually used <laughs> saying, why are we doing this? These are high risk zones. Uh, excuse me, Bobby Kamara, rather, a blogger there mm-hmm. on, the, on the Big Island, has said that and said, remember, ultimately, this is taxpayer money. Kirkwitz has suggested that maybe the county have a conversation about the general plan to revisit this policy. That is, that is what she is calling for.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've got to, you know, figure out, is this, does this make sense to keep allowing people to buy and build, and then we have to bail them out later?
10: Yeah, and the key thing there that Kamara is saying is that's our money, right? That's taxpayer money uh, ultimately. Uh, and as we all know, uh, it is uh, an active volcano there at Mauna Loa, and will continue to be going forward.
0: Okay, well, we'll have to keep an eye to see what else uh, uh, Madame Pelle decides to do. But thank you so much, Chad.
10: <laughs> sure, Catherine. Take care.
0: That was Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. You can read, uh, read Kevin Dayton's story online at civilbeat.org.
6: Support for H.P.R. comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with the immersive exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, Exploring the Human Connection to Nature. Now on view, details at HonoluluMuseum.org.
3: What happens in your brain when you decide to trust someone?
6: When people make decisions to trust, it's
4: kind of the
10: same as when they make decisions to gamble. You see activity in parts of the brain that are involved in its dopamine system that calculate on the fly. What does this gamble look like?
3: The Neuroscience of Trust, it's part two of our special series, Essential Trust. That's on the next On Point.
6: Beginning this afternoon at two, following the daily. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, presenting Beyond the Music, Beloved Brahms. Earl Lee conducts excerpts from Brahms' Fourth Symphony December 8th at Moanalua Performing Arts Center. Tickets at myhso.org.
0: Nikhil Sait is a very busy man. He's the United Nations Assistant uh, Attorney, uh, General Secretary. And the dust has ba- barely settled on the UN climate talks in Egypt. And guess what? He's back on the road. He arri- actually arrived here in Hawaii uh, last night to co-host a conference with Chaminade University. Representative from uh, Representatives from the UN's learning hubs will meet over the course of this week to share progress on their sustainability goals. The conversation Savannah Harriman spoke with Assistant General, General Secretary of State and Chaminade University's provost, Dr. Lance Ackleton, ahead of the conference this morning.
4: We have almost 25, going up to 30 next year, affiliated organizations all over the world, in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, and in Europe, and in North America. And all the directors of these institutions are coming together in Shaminade University, which hosts one of these affiliated universities, uh, affiliated organizations, to be able to talk about things we need to be doing together and to get some degree of coordination to help build the relationship between these various universities and to see what we can do going forward. So this
5: is our mission.
3: And Provost, can you let people in on what some of the agenda items are going to be during this conference?
5: So this meeting is really about uh, addressing the 17 Sustainable Development Goals that the United Nations Agenda 2030 chartered. And specifically, the centers in attendance will be talking about the progress that they've made over the past year, and then projecting new programs and initiatives that will help them address uh, these areas of priority going forward. Our own center, Seafall Honolulu, has focused its attention on issues of climate action, of uh, gender equality, of clean water, and these are just three of the 17 areas of focus that are shared among the 25 centers around the world.
3: Of those three that Shamanad has taken a particular investment in, is there one that you find particularly compelling?
4: It's difficult for me to uh, pinpoint and uh focus on one because you know from my perspective all these 17 sustainable development goals are so deeply enmeshed with each other that you can't make progress on one without making progress on the others let me take the example of gender equality now unless we advance on gender equality we're not going to do very well on any of the other goals including poverty eradication inequality maternal health and you name it, environmental, social, economic, all these goals. So they're so enmeshed that it will be unfair of me to pick out one of these. But clearly the issue which is captivating the world today, it's around climate change. And uh, what we once called a slow-onset event is not really a slow-onset event. It's uh, causing havoc all over the world, and we see the consequences everywhere. So... If I was to focus one, it would be climate change, but climate change itself is related to every other sustainable development goal. So it's very important for your listeners to understand that the sustainable development goals are a matrix of interrelationships. They are not discrete goals which we can pursue. You have to pursue them together to achieve the world we want by 2030.
3: In the years that you've been doing this work, how has an understanding of a definition of sustainability changed and what new agenda items have been put on these list of goals?
4: Yes, you know, I followed this issue almost uh, from the time I joined the United Nations, which was 32 years ago, and the definition of sustainable development has evolved a lot since the time I joined. When we had the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992, Sustainable development was the twinning of economic and environmental issues. And uh, for example, people said that look you can't save the Amazon forests by hugging trees. You need to find livelihoods and economic opportunities for the people who depend on the forests. And that kind of perception that sustainability is about economics and uh, environment but that subsequently morphed into a deeper understanding that it's not only economic issues, it's also social issues, issues of social inclusion, gender equality, and so on. And then came the realization that it's not only economic, social, environmental, it's also issues relating to peace. Because unless you have a peaceful society, how can you pursue sustainable development? In Ukraine today, would it make any sense to talk about sustainability when everything seems to be lying in ruins? And it's daily survival that's become uh, the uh, norm for the day. So actually, sustainable development today is the intersection of economics, it's an intersection of society, it's an intersection of the environment, and also the quest for just, fair, and peaceful societies. So it's become a most complex definition which covers all aspects of human hopes, of human fears, human dreams and aspirations. So it's become much more comprehensive and inclusive in its evolution from 1992 when we talked only of environment and economics.
3: Are we ever in danger when we expand definitions like this of losing focus on actionable items that we can accomplish?
4: I think what we've done successfully is to focus on the complexity of integrated actions. Human beings are complex uh, beings, you know. Our hopes and aspirations and fears are not just about jobs or just about uh, fears of the environment. Uh, We worry about our health. We worry about our children's education. We hope to put them into good schools. We hope that they get decent work once they're finished with schools and colleges. So bringing all those perspectives for intelligent and integrated decision-making that's what we've been able to achieve with the sustainable development goals and that i think is a great achievement because the way governments function are in compartments they rarely make these decisions in a consolidated integrated way so we're hoping the sdgs will guide them to make more intelligent and rational decisions
3: and provost what about the action items that shamanad is focusing on align with shamanad's overall mission as an as an institution
5: Yes, that's a, a very important point, and I'll, I'll begin by relating my response to your question about the definition, the expanding definition of sustainability. So in order to limit the mission drift from that sustainability focus, I think the most important tool that we have is education. And so as an alignment with the Sustainable Development Goals and our Seafall Honolulu initiative, we're really focused on what we always have done as an institution of higher education, and that is using education to empower people to then make change in their own communities. And so it's very aligned with our mission as an institution of higher education. More importantly, as a Catholic university, it's also aligned with Laudato Si, the Pope's encyclical on the value of creation, the need to steward our natural environment and live a more sustainable and durable life together. And so we find great harmony in both the mission of our seafall endeavor, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and our institutional ethos and mission as well.
3: And what do you see, sir, as the role of Hawaii on the international stage?
4: I think it's very important. First, to add to what Lance was saying, changing human attitudes and behaviors is the most difficult task in the world, especially for adults. And we are products of habit, of inertia, and we continue doing the same things. It's not only individuals, but also governments and policy makers. They continue to be making the same mistakes. So our hope is that by spreading knowledge and by giving people an understanding, it's not that people are ill-intentioned. It's that people are not necessarily aware of the complexities of the types of things We've been discussing with you today and our ability to bring this to business to bring this to civil society to bring this to local communities to bring this to academia to bring this to government policy makers that we'll be able to influence the way in which they make decisions hawaii is especially important in many of these but particularly on the handling of uh, the knowledge of indigenous communities and how their traditional knowledge has guided and helped them for so many thousands of years. And we risk losing all that unless we engage the indigenous communities, unless we bring their knowledge to bear on issues of environmental concern, on issues of social inclusion, on issues of gender equality. You know, uh, one thing which I'm going to urge all the 25 global CIFAL centers is to work much more with local communities to localize Agenda 2030. Sometimes SDGs seem an abstraction and a global aggregate, but this has to be broken down to local communities and to local Agenda 2030s. And that's one thing I'm going to urge all the directors to do, to focus much more on being local and that will add up to impacts globally.
3: And, Provost, is there something that really hits home for you that will be a topic of discussion in the next couple of days?
5: Well, it it really builds on what the Assistant Secretary General just stated. We are looking at uh, this opportunity to host the CFAL Global Network Meeting as one in which we can learn from our fellow CFAL centers around the world. This is an opportunity for us to see how other uh, UN sustainability centers are prosecuting their missions, and ways that we might replicate that here in Hawaii and across the Pacific. The sustainable development goals are not discrete goals. They're very much uh, interrelated, and it's hard to focus on individual topics. But overall, I think our, um, our interest and focus revolves around issues of climate and ecological support alongside some of the public health considerations. So we'll be looking to Seafall uh, Newcastle in Australia that's done some very innovative work in epidemiological uh, uh, issues. We'll be looking at Seafall Philippines and Seafall Jeju in Korea, who have done some very important work around social mobilization and um, uh, educational efforts to engage local communities. And we're hopeful that in addition to developing stronger ties with seafall centers around the world, we'll have the opportunity to really learn from their uh, successes and perhaps some of their failures and replicate the best practices here in our our part of the world.
3: When you think of successes and failures, do you think Hawaii has had a failure?
5: I, I would not call this a failure, but I think Hawaii continues to struggle on issues of balancing its tourism-driven economy with the ecological um, unsustainability of that industry. And that's obviously a current topic uh, of of much consideration across uh, our state. Um, I'm hopeful that uh, our new governor-elect, who will be speaking at an event uh, this evening, governor-elect Josh Green, will be able to help us identify a way forward Clearly we are on an unsustainable trajectory in in terms of tourism um, and the ecological balance that can be maintained. Um, We hope to be a part of that conversation alongside many other excellent organizations that have been doing this work in Hawaii and across the Pacific for many years. And our hope is that through education and outreach that we and other organizations can help influence policy that will find the right balance. As uh, Mr. Seth noted, um, we need to do more than just uh, speak to the aspirations of saving trees in the rainforest. We need to find alternatives that also save the livelihoods of people who rely on issues of tourism and other economic activity therein.
0: That was Chaminade University Provost, Dr. Lance, uh, Axelson and United Nations Assistant General Secretary Nikhil Seth on our international sustainability goals. And that conference uh, they were talking about kicks off tonight at Chaminade University. The public is welcome to attend. <laughs> Time for your backyard quiz answer. We told you about Kohala Mountain. Kohala is the oldest volcano of the visible five, which make up the big island. Kohala surfaced about a half a million years ago and went extinct about a quarter million years later. The hot spot which builds the island is stationary, but the Pacific Plate is slowly moving above it to the northwest. Mile-high Kohala Mountain used to be 3,000 feet higher, but catastrophic landslides, erosion uh, brought it down to its current elevation. Uh, The summit caldera is about 15 miles due west of Kohala, and we can't see it because... It's over 4,000 feet deep and is still sinking into the Earth's crust under its own vast weight. Its name, Mahukona. It means leeward stream in honor of a nearby town, beach, and stream in Kohala. And we had uh, no winners today. But that's our quiz for today. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at (music) hawaiipublicradio.org. HPR brought you multiple perspectives on a topic we all want more of, but don't get enough of, sleep. The back-to-school jam isn't just about traffic on the road, but the jam up in your sleep schedule, too. There's
6: been times I would do an assignment
1: that maybe 3 in the morning I'm finished, and I can't remember what happens throughout that day. He's not alone.
3: According to the CDC, Hawaii is the most sleep-deprived state in
4: the country. So there's no such thing as getting used to insufficient sleep. We instead accumulate what's called sleep debt over days, weeks, months, years,
3: and the impact of that can be really significant. So
8: it's actually a pretty interesting research study at at the University of Pittsburgh. The uh, participants in the study who slept less than six hours a night were four times more likely to catch a cold.
3: Okay, that's compelling.
1: Support news coverage at HPR. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org.
0: Years ago, Paige Bratton recalled being stunned to learn that her daughter was losing her eyesight. She made a promise that if the family got through the crisis, she would dedicate her efforts to helping others going through the same experience. She made good on that promise, developing a kid-friendly product, eye patches made with love. She credits her doctor and staff at the eye clinic for supporting her through a very traumatic time in her daughter's life. Her daughter's in the 8th grade now, and the family is living in Waimea on the Big Island. Bratton spoke with us last week about the company she founded, Seaworthy Patches, and how grateful she is that her colorful patches are putting smiles on people's faces. Her aim is to educate families about diagnosing eye disorders early.
7: So when my daughter was 5, we went to her regular pediatrician appointment, and she failed the basic um, smell-in test. And they recommended we'd go to the eye doctor, which, you know, I just thought was not such a big deal because, you know, lots of kids wear glasses. And when we got there after lots of tests, we found out there was a lot more wrong than just needing glasses. Um, At that point, her condition had progressed so much that her vision um, was really well past legally blind, um, doubly past legally blind. Um, And it could have been caused by brain tumors, which we found out it was not. So we were really lucky there, as well as it's a treatable condition. Um, And through this process, I did learn that all children should see an eye doctor by age three, according to the American Board of Pediatrics. I have never met a pediatrician who has told a parent that. Um, So I, in part of creating this product, have also made it my mission to try to help educate young parents through our website, through giving a portion of our proceeds to early detection vision screening programs like Project Vision Hawaii and Vision to Learn, which is national. Um but in treating our daughter, we found out she had to wear an eye patch. And it's not easy to learn to read and write when you are covering one eye and the other eye that's left uh, is the weaker eye and it was hot it was uncomfortable the designs were unattractive and she was older she wasn't two so she felt really really uncomfortable in front of friends at school and I just thought well we have to fix this there's only one product on the market and it's antiquated it hasn't changed since the 70s and it's like when you and I would go to long as a child and there'd be band-aids just one kind now there's so many kinds you're not sure which one to buy so I changed the adhesives, the materials, and the shape so it would all be a lot more comfortable to wear. And then I tried to make a lot more fun and um, catchy designs so it looks better, too.
0: I'm looking uh, at this product now, and, yeah, I mean, you've got, you know, it looks like flowers and and uh, funny creatures and just a lot more kid-friendly. Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah, funny. The... Foodie Box is our one of our best sellers. I think it's because in, young children, in particular, usually three year olds, are, are wearing patches. They're very excited because they know what pizza is. They know what bananas are. You know, it's, it's really relatable to them.
0: Well, you know, uh, how did your your daughter like the adjustment? You know, I mean, uh, instead of just the the old fashioned black patch. <laughs> How did she like the, uh, the more fun right. uh, well, designs? So she never
7: wore, actually, that old-fashioned black patch.
2: So mm.
7: um, she has amblyopia, which is the leading cause of childhood blindness, and it affects 1 in 45 children. And, you know, when you talk about childhood diabetes, that affects 1 in 400 children. So this is really much more common. Um, and the patches that they have to use is called an occlusion patch, which doesn't allow any light to come in. Um, So they're usually adhesive, and they usually had really aggressive adhesives, and the skin under your eye is extremely delicate, so there would be tearing of skin and rashes on on lots of kids. Um, We were pretty lucky and didn't have too bad of a situation with that, but the existing patches on the market were either, like, tan, beige-colored, white, or had, like, teddy bears and were just not really cute at all and she was old enough to know this is ugly you know mm-hmm. and, and um, so the motivator for a lot of kids is, is what it looks like
0: yeah and and uh, you know you've got to wear it right I mean she was able to uh, her condition improved um, wearing this patch
7: greatly greatly uh, when she began her acuity was at 2450. So legally blind is 2200 and now she's got a really normal, um, you know, she just wears little like glasses like for her vision's about 2040. So it, you know, by 100 100 degrees it, it changed.
0: Have you heard stories from other customers, you know, other children that have uh, used this patch? most
7: amazing and rewarding part of my job, I wake up every day and I get emails from all over the world, Africa, Europe, the mainland, uh, just thanking me for making this product because their children's faces are no longer bleeding, their children are motivated to wear the patch. Um, You can't save their child's vision if they're not going to cooperate with the treatment. And um, it's hard to get a child to cooperate with this particular treatment. And um, I've just had so much success in the making people's lives easier and better is so joyful for me
0: yeah and just coming off this holiday season you know folks I think are grateful that there's this product on the shelf and and that, that the, their child uh, feels better about themselves
7: yes definitely definitely I think uh, it's really really hard to ask your child you know to make themselves look different and then go out into the world uh, it, you know, you're always trying when you're raising kids, you're always trying to make them be more confident and you know, sending them out with an eye patch doesn't feel like that's the best way to do it and I would always say to my daughter, but you are really going to enjoy seeing when you are an adult, you're really going to be very grateful that you can see because, you know, vision is priceless you know, it's hard to get a job, it's hard to cross the street if you can't see, it's hard to drive a car if you can't see and you for all the parents, you know, that are struggling with this, that you just have to try and try to make sure you keep your eye on the prize because seeing is believing really, right? So we tried to create this product that makes it better because seeing is so important and it's hard to get your kids to do this treatment when they need it.
0: I see this as inspiration to, you know, other parents out there. I mean, you know, you're over on uh, on the big island there in Waimea and you just came Mm -hmm. up with this product because your daughter had a need.
7: Right, right. And in fact, I was, I was living in Honolulu at the time when I was doing product development. And um, I'm really grateful for some friends that are you know, still in Honolulu that you know helped introduce me to people that helped me figure out how to develop the product and manufacture it and all those things.
0: That was Big Island resident and entrepreneur Paige Bratton talking to us about the kid-friendly eye patches that she developed to help her daughter, who was at risk of losing her eyesight. Her daughter at the time attended Wai Lai Elementary School, and the whole school wore patches in solidarity. She can't say enough about the support that her family has received over the years from the community. The patches are available on our website, seaworthypatches.com, and at Amazon as well. Well, we're out of time now. Tomorrow, we continue our coverage of the Mauna Loa eruption. We'll also take a look at the rise in violent crime across the country on the Longview. Got feedback for us? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you listen. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the Conversation.